0: The 14th of July, the French celebrate Bastille Day every year as their national day and people around the world join them in that celebration, people who sympathise with the things that the French state has stood for. Bastille Day commemorates the date in 1789 when a mob of Parisian peasants stormed the Bastille and it was a turning point in the French Revolution. The Bastille was a fortress-like prison in Paris, and it housed political prisoners, but it also housed a considerable quantity of ammunition. It was a symbol of the absolutism of the French establishment, and therefore, of everything that the revolutionaries were opposing in France at the time. Now, as it happens, there were only seven prisoners in the prison on the day it was stormed, but it was a symbolism of the event, rather than the substance that seared that date into the consciousness of the French and indeed of many other people since then. Indeed, I used to work in a company where every Bastille Day the management team had a special lunch to commemorate Bastille Day, even though it wasn't a French company. It's a date that many people celebrate, not just the French. And that's because the French Revolution is a very significant event in world history. So just as the storming of the Bastille is a significant milestone in the French Revolution, so the French Revolution is a significant milestone in history. It is generally agreed by historians that modern history covers events in the French Revolution, from the French Revolution onwards. And most standard textbooks of modern history, particularly those used in high school study of modern history, commence with the French Revolution and the events that led up to it. And that's significant because all events, of course, happen in the context. And the French Revolution is no exception. It developed within a context. In the decades leading up to 1789, several developments arising from the Enlightenment culminated in the tumult which consumed France from 1789 onwards. In 1762, Rousseau published his book titled Social Contract. And in Social Contract, Rousseau claimed that man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. And those, that idea and similar ideas inspired men in various places to rise up in support of political and civil liberty. In 1773, there were several oppressed groups in Southeast Russia who rebelled against their Russian overlords and they were very brutally suppressed. And in 1776, more familiar perhaps to us, the revolutionaries in the 13 British colonies along America's east coast, issued their Declaration of Independence, which initiated a war of independence, which culminated in the defeat of the British and the establishment of the United States of America in 1783. Now, because France and Britain had been traditional enemies, we, of course, have lived in a century where France and Britain have tended to be friendly. But that's actually the exception over history. And certainly up to the 1780s, France and Britain had been traditional enemies. And the French, therefore, were very sympathetic to the American revolutionaries. And many Frenchmen served with the revolutionary forces in America. Perhaps the most notable of these was a French nobleman named Lafayette. And although of noble birth, Lafayette returned to France imbued with liberal views, which he picked up for mixing with the revolutionaries in America. And he became a key figure in the early years of the French Revolution. Lafayette helped to write the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen a milestone document in terms of civil liberties. In that task, he was helped by his American friend, that very prominent American revolutionary, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And inspired by the the United States Declaration of Independence, that document invoked natural law to establish basic principles of the democratic nation state. That, in itself, is a very significant uh, development in world history. The nation state, a concept that we just live with, as except as a norm, in fact, did not exist until the French Revolution as a concept. And the principles in that document are at the heart of many debates about human rights in the world today. It still resonates. And you still will see it reflected in developments in relation to civil and human rights in the world today. Lafayette, incidentally, also advocated the end of slavery, but that was a policy that neither the Americans nor the French were willing to pursue at that time. Now, if the French Revolution took place within a wider a context of wider revolutionary movements, why should it be regarded, as it is, as a watershed in world history? why is it seen as more significant in terms of world history than, say, the American Revolution? Well, as we shall see later as we will proceed tonight, there is a key factor in the French Revolution which marks it out as different from other contemporary movements that prompted political and civil rights. And the significance of the French Revolution in terms of history can be seen in the way in which it is described by many historians. One writer has very pithily summed up the significance of the French Revolution. The French example inspired hope of liberty around the world. It wasn't just an influence in France, it ignited interest in liberty well beyond the borders of France. For many years, the standard textbook on the subject was Thomas Carlyle's The French Revolution. Brother Peter tells me that some of his sons have been studying the French Revolution at school. They will be pleased this book is no longer considered standard reading um, for that course, because it's pretty heavy going. Having said that, it's heavy going because it's exceptionally comprehensive, and it is still in print because it is a very good record, albeit rather detailed. Who was Carlyle? He was a Scottish philosopher and writer who turned his back on Christianity and rejected Christianity in the 19th century, which is a pretty radical thing to do in the upper class in Britain at the time. And his book, The French Revolution, was published in 1837 and, as I said, remains in print today. It was, in fact, this book which inspired Charles Dickens to write his classic work, The Tale of, Tale of Two Cities. No less than seven times in this book, Carlyle uses the language of earthquake to describe the effects of the French Revolution. And the following are just five examples. He speaks of a horror of great darkness and shakings of the world and a cup of trembling which all nations shall drink. It's quite a biblical language, isn't it, for a man who turned his back on the Bible? He refers to the sansculottic earthquake. Now, there's a word you don't use every day, sansculottic. Sansculott is the term that was used to refer to the lower classes in France because they wore trousers. It's a pretty radical idea. They wore trousers rather than the silk culottes or knee breeches of the upper classes. So, of course, the sansculottic earthquake is the earthquake triggered by the lower classes. Referring to the early stirrings of revolution, he wrote, hope ushers in a revolution as earthquakes are preceded by bright weather. You don't know whether that's true, scientifically, but he said it and he invoked the idea of the earthquake. Speaking about the turmoil that emerged from the revolution, he exclaimed, how is our bright era of hope dimmed and the whole sky growing bleak with signs of hurricane and earthquake? As he described the way the French Revolution descended into anarchy. And in writing of the demise of the monarchy, he spoke of the earthquake of insurrection. And as we said, there are other examples where he uses that very word earthquake to describe the French Revolution. Now, when Thomas Carlyle in 1837 employed this metaphor of an earthquake to describe the French Revolution, he was following in the footsteps of earlier commentators. As early as 1790, Edmund Burke, another significant thinker of the day, used the term earthquake when reflecting upon the impact of the French Revolution and its potential to destabilise not just France but the whole continent. Edmund Burke writing in 1790, mind you, just in the very early days of the Revolution, many parts of Europe are in open disorder. In many others, there is a hollow murmuring underground. You can can feel the idea of the tremor coming out, can't you? A confused movement is felt that threatens a general earthquake in the political world. Already confederacies and correspondences of the most extraordinary nature are forming in several countries. In such a state of things, we ought to hold ourselves upon our guard. And they were very nervous in the 1790s, especially in England, that these things would spread across the Channel and destabilise their country as it was destabilising the rest of Europe. A few years later, Frederick Schlegel, writing in Germany in 1798, also used the word earthquake when referring to the French Revolution. He described, he spoke about the greatest and most remarkable phenomenon in the history of states an almost universal earthquake and immeasurable inundation in the political world. So, The language was coined very early because people could see the significance of what was happening. And that language is still being used today by writers about the French Revolution. This is an extract from the current online version of Encyclopaedia Britannica in relation to the French Revolution. A seismic shift was occurring in elite public opinion. What began in 1787-88 as a conflict between royal authority and traditional aristocratic groups had become a triangular struggle with the people opposing both absolutism and privilege. A new kind of political discourse was emerging and within a year it was to produce an entirely new concept of sovereignty with extremely far-reaching implications. And, he's right, and they're right in every sense. And here we are 230 years later, more than 230 years later, and it is still rumbling the effects of the French Revolution are still rumbling around the world. The aftershocks of the great earthquake of the French Revolution are still evident today. Now, it's remarkable that this language should be applied to the French Revolution by so many historians and political commentators of the time because it picks up directly the imagery used in the Bible when referring to the French Revolution and earlier this season, we read Revelation 11. And in that chapter, symbolic language is used to describe events surrounding the French Revolution. The early verses of Revelation 11 describe forces which opposed the Roman Catholic system and its political allies. And in verse seven, these opposing forces become the victim of fierce oppression, which silenced them for a period. Verses seven to 10 of Revelation 11. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Now, without going into the details of all the symbols, we don't have that much time tonight. What this language describes is the suppression of dissent against the authority of the established church and monarchy. And this was a very important feature, a notable feature of the century leading up to the French Revolution in Europe generally, and in France in particular. Barbara Tuchman has commented on this time. This is a book that many of you will be familiar with more because of its interest in terms of England and the Jews, but she makes this observation in Bible and sword. In the intervening period loosely called the 18th century, which she defines as from 1660 to somewhere in the 1780s, dissent lived in the shadows. Aristocracy held the place of the sun. Indeed, the French king was called the sun king, wasn't he? And it was the age, says Prevalian, of aristocracy and liberty, the rule of law and absence of reform. So historians have noted that there was this period leading up, in 100 years or so, leading up to the French Revolution when dissent was heavily suppressed and the powers uh, of the church and the state prevailed. In quite an autocratic and despotic way. And as Tuchman indicates, the eclipse of those opposed to the French, to the Roman Catholic system, and its political allies, expired at the end of the 1780s. And that's described then in Revelation 11 from verse 11 to 13. And after three, and a half, three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, although the French government suppressed dissent for many years, over a century, in 1789, the king summoned a General Assembly of the French people. Known as the Estates-General, that was effectively the Parliament of France. But the Estates-General had not met since 1614. So it was a momentous event when it was convened in 1789, for the first time in 175 years. And the prophecy refers to this in the symbolic language of verse 12, when it says, "'A great voice from heaven.'" That is, from the political heavens, indeed the king himself, said unto the people, come up hither. Now, the Estates-General, this pseudo-parliament for France at the time, the Estates-General was comprised of three estates or groups. The first estate was the clergy, which in France meant the Roman Catholic clergy only, certainly no Protestants. The second state was the nobility or the aristocracy. And the third estate was the rest of France. If you weren't a clergyman, you weren't an aristocrat, you were in the third estate, the common people. So amongst the common people, which of course were the vast majority, there were those who who opposed the church and aristocracy when these commoners gathered in Paris for the meeting of the estates general, in the language of verse 12, their enemies in the first and second estate beheld them. The people who didn't like them came face to face with them which was a pretty rare event given they hadn't met for 175 years and their enemies beheld them. Now why did the king call upon this group to meet? He summoned the estates to meet to try to resolve the impasse that had emerged in the government of France at the time, especially in relation to its financial woes. But he quickly lost control of events after he summoned and brought this group into being. Traditionally, each of the three estates exercised one vote in their deliberations. So there might have been a vast number of people in the room, as it were, but they voted by group. So you always had only three votes. No regard was given to the number of votes each group represented. So of course, the first and second estates, the clergy and the aristocracy, could always outvote the third estate by two to one, even though they spoke for an infinitesimally small group of people, and a very privileged segment of society. And the third estate represented the vast majority. Well, in 1789, the dissenters had enough of being silenced and they refused to be overridden. And having enjoyed some initial success, they craved more and more power. And over the next few years, the situation in France became more and more fevered and more and more chaotic and quickly descended into anarchy. Now, we don't have time to review tonight all the events and the vicissitudes of the revolution. As we've seen, whole books have been written on the subject. What we wish to do, however, is to demonstrate how the language of verse 13 was reflected in the events as they transpired. So, look again at verse 13. In the same hour, there was there there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, the first thing we note is the reference to a great earthquake. Not just an earthquake, but a great earthquake. As we've seen, earthquake is a term which historians and political commentators at the time used to describe the French Revolution. Now, this is the second of three great earthquakes recorded in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, the term great earthquake is reserved for events of the greatest magnitude in the outworking of God's plan and purpose as outlined in the book of Revelation. So the French Revolution is not just a key milestone in history as it is, it's a key milestone in the development and outworking of God's plan and purpose. The world order that existed up to then was being overturned, was completely overturned. After Napoleon, there were efforts to restore the old order, but the changes initiated by the revolution could not be permanently reversed. And the genie was out of the bottle and could never be put back in. Try as they might through the 19th century to reverse it, it kept failing. The efforts to suppress what had happened kept failing. Now what made this revolution different from, say, the, French, the American Revolution, is that it was not just a rebellion against the forces of the king or the government. A key target of the revolutionaries in France was the power and authority of the Roman Catholic Church. In his book on the French Revolution, Hilaire Belloc, which many of you will perhaps recognise more for his witty and humorous verse, but in fact was a very fine historian and author in in his own right. In his book on the French Revolution, Hilaire Belloc summed up the hostility of the revolutionaries toward the Roman Catholic Church. He describes it as an attempt to destroy the Catholic Church. The story of the relations between the revolution and the church, though wild and terrible, is simple. It is the story of mere persecution culminating in extremes of cruelty and in the supposed uprooting of Christianity in France. The Orthodox clergy were everywhere regarded by this time as the typical enemies of the revolutionary movement, They themselves regarded the revolutionary movement by this time as being principally an attempt to destroy the Catholic Church. It was the antipathy of the French Revolution for both the civil and religious establishment in France which marks it as differing from other contemporary movements for freedom and civil liberty. It also sets the scene for the judgments against the Roman Catholic system and its political allies, which flowed from the revolution and from which the Roman Catholic system has even not yet fully recovered more than 230 years later, although it has recovered to a significant degree. In Revelation 11, verse 13, the earthquake spoken about is said to afflict the 10th part of the city. The word city applies to the Roman Empire and that can be demonstrated from historical sources. And the 10th part that was afflicted was France. Now, you could easily say, well, you could say anything you like, really. You know, pluck a, a name out of, out of the air if you want, and apply it to the symbol, because it suits what you want it to say. But that interpretation, in fact, predates the French Revolution. That this was the meaning of the prophecy was appreciated by Bible students long before the French Revolution took place. In 1687, so more than 100 years prior to the French Revolution, a man named Pierre Giraud wrote these words, obviously a French commentator. What is the tenth part of the city which shall fall? In my opinion, we cannot doubt that it is France. This kingdom is the most considerable part or piece of the ten horns or states which once made up the great Babylonian city of Rome. So 100 years before these things took place, he could see the relevance of them to to France. The feature of the revolution to which verse 13 draws attention is the fact that 7,000 men were slain. Now, anyone who knows anything about the history of the French Revolution will think that 7,000 is a gross understatement of how many died and indeed it is it would be a gross understatement in the reign of terror alone and the reign of terror lasted for just under a year in 1793 and 1794 in the reign of terror alone in that less than one year at least seventeen thousand people were killed and vastly more were killed during the course of whatever years you Decide to define the revolution as occupying. We need to remember, however, that this prophecy is a symbolic prophecy. It's a prophecy of symbols. And so we should seek a symbolic meaning for the statement. It's not a literal tally of the dead, it's a symbolic statement. The way this verse is translated in most Bibles masks what the text is trying to tell us because the verse is not intended to tell us that many individuals died. That's a true statement, but that's not what it's trying to tell us. Rather, that a vast number of types of people were slain or eliminated. If you've got an authorised version in front of you, you'll note that the authorised version margin and a few more recent translations reflect better the true meaning of the phrase. So Robert Young, Killed in the earthquake were names of men, 7,000. Rotherham slain in the earthquake were names of men, 7,000. Diaglot were destroyed, 7,000 names of men. And the AV margin in the earthquake were slain, names of men, 7,000. So the prophecy is telling us that many titles would be eliminated by the revolution rather than specifically individuals. And so it was that the aristocracy and their titles were abolished. And the clerical system of which the Roman Catholic system was of course the embodiment was suppressed and their titles weren't respected either. Now the Bible student and author, Pierre Duro, that we looked at earlier, and who had already seen and accurately predicted the French Revolution from his reading of this prophecy, went on to write, the tenth part of the city which here fell will at some future time appear to be the kingdom of France, where a revolution will take place about the year 1785. Yeah, this has been written in 1687. She didn't do too badly with his guess of the date. and a separation from the pap- papacy follow when the names of monks and nuns of Carmelites, Augustines, Domin- Dominicans shall perish forever and all those vain titles and amoral bearings will serve for ornament and pride shall vanish and brotherly love make all men equal. Well, it didn't quite work out like that. But nevertheless, not a bad prediction of what happened in a 100 years time based on his reading of Revelation 11. Another scholar who saw that this prophecy pointed forward to a great turmoil in France in which the Catholic Church specifically would be afflicted, was a man named Jacques Philippon. And more than 100 years prior to the revolution, in 1685, he wrote these words. As the King of France did his utmost to enhance the glory of Popery, it will be the King of France who shall most contribute to her ruin, which, of course, he did by summoning the Estates-General and unleashing the Third Estate. The persecution of the Roman Catholic Church during the French Revolution, which Hilaire Belloc describes so extensively in his book, had been anticipated more than a century in advance by students who correctly interpreted this prophecy. But the persecution of the church and its supporters by the French revolutionaries was just the start of a great period of trial for the church. If we turn now to Revelation 16, one of our readings for yesterday, we have a chapter which describes the pouring out of seven vials or bowls of judgment. And this imagery of bowls of judgment or vials of judgment extends what is written about the French Revolution in Revelation 11. The seven vials or bowls of judgment described in Revelation 16 take us from the time of the French Revolution up to, until our time and even beyond our own times to the return of Christ. Up to and beyond indeed the return of Christ to the earth. The first vial of these seven vials is described in verse 2 of Revelation 16. And the first angel went and poured out his vial upon the earth and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. This vial is another reference to the French Revolution and confirms it was the start of a great period of turmoil for the world. And you'll note through the symbolism of the verse that it highlights how, in particular, the revolution inflicted suffering upon the Roman Catholic system and its allies. Now, again, we don't have time tonight to expound each of the vials in detail, uh, but we will make the point... That Viles two to five involved judgments upon Catholic forces in which the French were involved in the years following the Revolution. Out of the turmoil of the Revolution emerged a towering military and political leader. Not towering in a physical sense, of course, he was a rather short man, but towering and dominant in terms of his military and political impact, Napoleon Bonaparte. And he was the instrument of many of these judgments that summarised, many of these vile judgments that summarised here in this chart in very high level terms. The second vile, the sea war against Europe, which of course involved um, Britain particularly, against the French, the French campaigns in North Italy, which were very significant in terms of unleashing forces which led to the unification of Italy in 1870. The fourth War, the French campaigns against Austria, which led to the overthrow or the, the, the demise of the Holy Roman Empire after a 1,000 years. And then, of course, the French campaigns against Rome, which, again, kept rolling on. Many of these judgments, the effects of them kept rolling forward in through history as well. They don't just... Although I've given nominal years there, the effect of them continues down through the centuries and, and particularly, as you can see from two of them, and indeed the one with Austria, had very significant impacts on the reunification of Germany and of Italy, uh, which took place in 1870. When we come to the sixth vial, we reach the days in which we are now living. Revelation 16 from verse 12 to 16. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame." and he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So in the symbolism of this sixth vial, we have a further reference to the French Revolution and the influence it had on the wider world. Seals 1 to 5 focused on parts of Europe where the Roman Catholic system was dominated. The sixth vial now moves us to the Middle East. But still it's the effects of the French Revolution that are coming out. The reference to the euphrates river is of course symbolic it tells us about a power it speaks about a power which once controlled that river that is going to dry up over time and that's exactly what happened to the ottoman empire especially in the years after the french revolution and the decline of the ottoman empire was a notable feature of particularly the 19th century it started before that, in the 18th century, really, but they reached their biggest descent in the 17th century. The decline really started in the 18th, but it really set in the 19th century. And the Ottoman Empire declined progressively as more and more people of the empire, people they'd oppressed, threw off the shackles and strove for independence from their Ottoman overlords. Many of these races that they had had been dominated by the Ottomans in their empire, were inspired by the spread of ideas of freedom arising from the revolution in France. As this chart seeks to demonstrate, the forces unleashed by the French Revolution spread out across Europe like ripples on a pond, awakening oppressed people to the prospect of freedom and nationhood. Especially in Europe initially, where, of course, there was the greatest potential to be influenced by the thinking in France, but also spreading further afield over time. So as well as being felt in Europe, these forces affected the nationalities suffering under the moribund rule of the Ottoman Empire, especially in Eastern Europe, but also in the Middle East and North Africa. Two writers who have commented on this are Sir Andrew Wingate and J. Holland Rose. Sir Andrew Wingate writes in Palestine, Mesopotamia and the Jews, the first hope of deliverance reached these tortured nationalities from the French Revolution, possibly through the Jews, whom the event awakened to a sense of coming liberation. And J. Holland Rose, in his book, The Development of the European Nations, speaks about the force of nationality, however, after moulding anew the boundaries and politics of Central Europe, spread eastward to arouse to activity races that had long reigned helpless under the heel of the Turk, races like the Romanians and the Macedonians and the Bulgarians and the Syrians and other Arab relations in the Middle East. So, Revelation 16, verses 13 to 14, describes three frog like spirits going forth that will destabilise the world and bring it to what verse 14 calls the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And in verse 16, that is described as Armageddon. Now, the frog is an easily recognisable symbol to France. And France itself has been notoriously unstable ever since the French Revolution. Some historians argue that the revolution never ceased. One of the reasons why you get difficulty in assigning dates to the French Revolution is because in the eyes of many historians, it never ended. A bit like the Korean it's never ended, it just keeps going on. And the French Revolution has continued to rumble ever since 1789, and indeed is continuing today. Since the overthrow of the monarchy in 1793 and the subsequent reign of terror, France has been subject to all kinds of rule, hasn't it? There have been at least five republics, two empires, one monarchy, all in the last 230 years. And that doesn't include the period in World War II when half the country was occupied by Germany and the other half was under a public government based in Vichy. Now, I look out in the audience, I can see there are several people old enough to remember this. Sad to say. But some of you will remember that in the terrible riots in the streets of Paris in the late 1960s, when the French army had to be brought onto the streets of Paris to restore order, and indeed people were killed in those riots. But all of us, I'm sure, will remember that since the, how there has been since 2018 a rolling series of protests in Paris, particularly, and in France generally, in the ongoing protests of the Yellow Vest Movement, who have been particularly aggressive. And indeed, it's only really the pandemic that has helped to dampen the enthusiasm for their protests. Having said that, it has inspired them to protest against the lockdowns and and the other restrictions that the pandemic has imposed. So France is inherently unstable as of course are many parts of the world previously controlled by France. Just think of places that France has administered in the past and think about how many of them are chronically unstable. Places like Syria, Lebanon, Algeria, Tunisia, Indochina, Central and West Africa. So many of them have been and many still are centres of conflict and turmoil. Such is the influence of France and the forces unleashed by the revolution. The forces unleashed by the French Revolution focused the attention of men and women on the value of freedom and national self-determination. They fostered a flourishing of nationalism and the nation state became an idea that had previously not existed. And as a result, they have created a world which is very unstable. And many wars have been fought in the name of nationalism since the French Revolution. Now, on the credit side of the ledger, and let us not be all doom and gloom about this, on the credit side of the ledger, we should acknowledge that the influence of the French Revolution has not been all bad. The promotion of civil rights which flowed from the revolution has led to the freedoms that we enjoy today. Indeed, the very freedom that we're exercising tonight by coming here to open God's word without hindrance and without oppression and to discuss these things freely and openly. So, unquestionably, there's an upside to this, which we benefit from. The downside of this promotion of civil rights, however may be seen in the current trends towards restricting the rights of Bible believers and others to promote views which are at odds with the more liberal attitudes of the wider community. I think it's likely that our freedom to preach, a product of the forces unleashed by the French Revolution, may in fact one day be curtailed by the evolution of community attitudes which themselves have been fostered by those very same forces. And you see it manifesting itself in all sorts of ways. You know, there's been, even in this country, protests against the lockdown, particularly particularly violent protests in Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, But you see it in all sorts of of social trends. The wave of of euthanasia legislation, which is uh, coming across this country in recent times, is another manifestation of the sorts of liberties that flow from the French Revolution. All the, the ideas of gender equity uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement all sp- have links back to the same forces. Some of them positive, some of them negative. It's no accident that the symbolism of the Sixth Vile combines both the influence of the French Revolution and the area formerly occupied by the Ottoman Empire. Just as the forces unleashed by the French Revolution led to the evaporation of the Ottoman Empire, so those same forces continue to foster instability and conflict in the territories formerly occupied and dominated by the Ottomans. If you look around the Middle East today, you can see evidence of this in the territories they formerly controlled. There are the current brutal civil wars being waged in Syria, Yemen, and Libya. There are are those dysfunctional states, like Lebanon and Iraq, completely dysfunctional. There are the unresolved yearnings of the Kurdish people, which no one seems to want to solve. And of course, there are the tensions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Two nations, both claiming the same land as their homeland, both claiming the same city as their capital city. I think it's more than just ironic that the forces unleashed by the French Revolution have inspired both Zionism and Palestinian nationalism, thus ensuring that there is constant and irresolvable tension in the Holy Land. The forces unleashed by the French Revolution continue to rumble and rattle the world like aftershocks of a great earthquake. They will continue to do so until the nations are drawn to the battle of Armageddon. That is surely the message of the sixth vial in Revelation 16. So as we observe the world today in 2021, whether we look locally at the civil issues and the social issues in in this city, and this state, whether we look internationally, we can see these things being worked out before our eyes. Well, that being so then, we need to heed the message of Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Well, it's all very well to recognise that Bible prophecy predicted the French Revolution and that it predicted its ongoing influence down to our own days. Having recognised these things, we need also to take on board that those, things, those events confirm that the Lord Jesus Christ will soon return to earth to re-establish God's kingdom on earth, to reign over a world at peace, when the turmoil that currently characterises this world will be brought to an end. If we wish to survive Armageddon and play a part in the kingdom of God, soon to be established, we need to heed the words of verse 15. We need to make sure we are ready for the coming of Christ by covering our nakedness. How do we do that? We do it by putting on Christ through baptism. So each of us needs to consider our position as a matter of urgency, whether we're baptised or not, that we are ready for our Lord's return because the signs tell us that he is at the door.